of this age. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you God for sustaining it for us through the ages that we can have it this morning. We've heard it read. Generally we understand the words. We come to you now and ask for more than general understanding. Father, open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. Teach us, train us, correct us, Lord, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. Make us more like Jesus. By your spirit, work in our hearts. Work in us, O oh God, that we might be encouraged. That we might know the greatness of our salvation and the greatness of our promised Savior. Help us, O oh God, to delight even more in our King Jesus. Father, help me, your servant. Protect me from error. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O oh God. You are our rock. You are our refuge and our redeemer. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A Scottish pastor and theologian, Sinclair Ferguson, once shared that when he was in high school, there was a particular morning assembly that remained deeply embedded in his memory. As was the custom in his high school, a senior, a member of the senior class, was selected to do the scripture reading for the whole school that day. And chosen on this day was Dr. Ferguson's good friend named Hugh. And when Hugh stood up, this is what Hugh said to the assembly. He said, the reading this morning is from the gospel according to Isaiah. My heart sank, Dr. Ferguson recalls. Oh, Hugh, you know that Isaiah is not a gospel. It's a prophecy. Years later, Sinclair found himself saying this, and I quote, Of course I was technically right, 
but I cannot help reflecting on my friend's unintentional or maybe intentional insight. He had indeed read from the gospel according to Isaiah, just as again this Christmas time and hundreds of thousands, indeed millions of churches around the world, the gospel according to Isaiah will be read. And in a multitude of concert halls where Handel's Messiah will be performed, the words of Isaiah 9-6 will be sung. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, count the Granville Chapel among those millions of churches that will be considering the gospel according to Isaiah at Christmas time this year. As we enter into this season of Advent, maybe that word's new to you. Advent just means reflection and anticipation. Uh, it's a season of reflection, a season of anticipation. I want to lead us to consider that promised name that I just read from Isaiah 9-6. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. And I want us to see how each facet of that name, it's just that it's a name with four facets, like looking at light reflected or refracted, I should say, from a diamond. Right? I want us to see how each facet of that name focuses on the present and future work of Jesus on behalf of his people as we both celebrate his first coming, that he indeed was born a baby in Bethlehem. But also as we look with eager anticipation to his future second coming. We're still in a time of Advent. So this morning we'll examine this passage that I read for you from 1 Corinthians and discover together what it means that Jesus is called Wonderful Counselor. Now we're going to fall short of a full exposition of this text. If I was preaching through 1 Corinthians, I'd probably preach three sermons just on the passage that I read to you. But we're going to fall short of a full exposition. But we will nevertheless see the main point. That Jesus is the wisdom of God that brings us to a full knowledge of salvation. Jesus is the wisdom of God that brings us to the full knowledge of salvation. For context's sake... Here in the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is, is writing to the church at Corinth. He's grinding an axe, right? He's writing to the church to address divisions, to address divisions that are happening in the body. And as he addresses them, he reminds them in the verse just before the passage I read, you can look there in verse 17. He reminds them that he's been sent to preach the gospel, to preach the gospel, and he says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, it's not unreasonable to think that someone, either in the Corinthian church or maybe in our church, that someone would object to a statement like that. Why not, Paul? Why not? Don't you want people to believe you? Surely you're going to use all the tools in your toolbox to persuade your hearers to embrace your message, won't you, Paul? Why not use fancy words of eloquent wisdom, Paul? 
verses 18 through 31 serve as a long answer to that question. And the answer is actually very simple. Christ himself is both our wisdom and our power for salvation. Christ and Christ alone. In long form, Paul is saying he is indeed our wonderful counselor. He is our wonderful counselor. To better understand this answer contained in these verses, I want us to consider the two main points that Paul is making in the passage. And then after that, we'll spend some time seeing how those points affect our life now as we wait for Jesus to return again one day in glory. So the first of these main points can be summarized with the following phrase. If you're taking notes, you can write point one, what the world seeks. Point one, what the world seeks. According to Paul, the world is seeking wisdom. The world is seeking wisdom. Where is the one who is wise? He asks in verse 20. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He also asks in verse 20. Then if you look at verse 21, he says, In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. You see, the world is seeking wisdom. You might argue the world is seeking knowledge. The world is seeking something, what they call wisdom, but they're seeking it in vain. The Jews, Paul says in verse 22, he says that the Jews demand signs. The Jews wanted miraculous attestation to validate the message about Jesus. They wanted signs to validate that what Paul is saying about Jesus is true before they would ever believe a word of it. They wanted signs that were apocalyptic in tone. They wanted signs that were triumphant in character. They wanted signs that were a very embodiment of the mighty deeds of deliverance that God had worked on Israel's behalf in the past. They wanted water from a rock. They wanted the sea or the river to dry before them in part. They wanted to call down plagues of judgment. To the Jews, without these signs, any word was folly. It wasn't wisdom. It wasn't accompanied with signs. It was foolishness. The Greeks, on the other hand, Paul says in verse 22, another way to say the rest of the world, the Gentile world, right? The Greeks do seek wisdom, but not true wisdom. What is he saying? He's saying that they wanted a, a message about Jesus that conformed to the identifiable patterns of wisdom with, with which they were very familiar with. You see, in Corinth, and actually in the Greek world in general, if you were to be considered wise... You would need to have your wisdom accompanied with something. What is that something? Honor. Prestige. Influence. Power. The wise could sway the crowds. Whether they knew what they were talking about or not. They could sway the crowds. They could navigate the very, very complicated political system. They could navigate it. And somehow in navigating it, they could keep moving up and keep advancing their own social status. So for them, for the Greek, wisdom that came in weakness, wisdom that came in humility, was nothing more 
than foolishness. Evidence, signs right, or evidence, conventional wisdom, evidence, conventional wisdom, these two approaches are still a great model for what it means to be wise today. Right? People still demand evidence, but only evidence that aligns with their own predetermined prejudices. People still seek a message of wisdom, but that message of wisdom has got to fit nicely into their judgments about what is politically correct, what's socially acceptable, and what's culturally fitting. The world has always demanded signs and sought wisdom. And guess what? It always will. Mm -hmm. It always will. And if you noticed what Paul's getting at here, it's always been demanded, and it will be, that it be delivered by an acceptable method as well. It's got to be packaged just right. Paul alludes to this in verse 17. You can look there. When he says he wouldn't preach in the way the world expects him to. He's not going to preach with words of eloquent wisdom. That's what would have been expected of him in Corinth. Right? He, he's not coming. He's saying, I'm not coming to Corinth with some impressive oratory that is aimed solely at being socially acceptable and culturally attractive. In fact, Paul even calls out people who do this in verse 20. Where's the wise, he asks. Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the age? I was thinking that if he wrote this today, he might have said this. Where's the life coaches? Where are the journalists? Where are the talking heads that we see on TV? Where are they? We're familiar with those methods of delivery, aren't we? We're surrounded by them. My shiny little rectangle in my pocket blows up with them all the time. Everybody has something to say. We're familiar with it. But the pressure that it brings on us, if you don't recognize this, you need to. The pressure that it brings on us is so great that even us, even you, even me, are tempted to feel like we have to sound just like these people. The scribes, the talking heads, whatever. We feel like if we're ever going to win a hearing with the world, somehow we have to massage the message. That's code for compromise, the message. So that we'll be socially acceptable and taken seriously. <laughs> We've convinced ourselves that if we want to have a seat at the cool kids' table, we have to look and sound just like the cool kids, no matter the cost. Too many people have bought that lie. That's what the world's seeking. That's Paul's point. That's what the world is seeking. The world seeks a message that is heavy with the prevailing wisdom of the day, and that is packaged in a socially acceptable Methodology. But what the world wants, what the world is seeking, is not what is offered by the wonderful counselor. This brings us to Paul's second main point in the passage. You can title it this, What the Cross of Christ Offers. What the Cross of Christ Offers. I learned this week that it was in 1909 when a man named Harry Gordon Selfridge 
who was the wealthy founder of Selfridge's department store in London, it was this man who coined the phrase, the customer is always right. And he used it to drive home a point, point being that customer service comes first at Selfridge's department store. We still use that phrase today, don't we? Especially when we feel wronged, right? I'm always right. The customer's always right. We use that a lot. We use it to say that, you know, if you want your business to flourish and prosper, you have to find out what people want. You've got to do the market research, right? You have to find out what their preferences are. What are they looking for? Find out what they need. And let's be honest. Find out what they think they need, right? And then you've got to give it to them. Give them what they want, what they need, what they think they need. And that works pretty well in the world of retail. Works well in the service industry and other businesses, doesn't it? But as a philosophy of ministry, it's terrible. As a philosophy of ministry, Paul is absolutely unwilling to play that game. For Paul, the clear truth is that the customer is not always right. There's only one truth. A truth. It's not find your own truth. There's one truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. So Paul rejects worldly expectations and methodologies. He even rejects the word words. He rejects words. It's plural. Look again at verse 18. All right, I'm sorry, verse 17. I come with words of eloquent wisdom, but look what he does in verse 18. He offers only the word. Definite article, singular. The word. Not words of wisdom, but the word. Paul offers only the unchanging, unaccommodated, unreconstructed gospel. He offers the word of the cross. This word, he says, is, quote, folly to those who are perishing. Look down at verse 23. This word, he says, is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul knows what the world wants. He knows that there is nothing more offensive to Jews and Greeks alike than a message about a crucified Messiah. There's nothing more offensive than that. Even so, he's not budging. He refuses to accommodate the message to fit the context. I think it would help us to think this through a little bit more. We struggle, I think, I know I I do, uh, with seeing just how radical Paul sounds in this passage. You know, to us, the cross isn't nearly as offensive as it was to Paul's peers in those days. I mean, think about what we do with crosses. We put them on greeting cards, right? We put them on greeting cards. We put stickers on our water bottles and on our cars with crosses on it. We make jewelry out of it. We decorate our churches with crosses. The cross is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. And for the most part, at least for now, it's inoffensive, it's clean, and it's safe. But not in Paul's day. Here's how uh, Cicero, maybe you've heard of him, he's the famous Roman orator of that day. Listen to how Cicero described the common attitude toward the cross. I quote, The very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but also from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. The cross is vulgar, it is gruesome, 
And it's a shocking thing even to mention in polite society. It's an execution device. It's an execution device. We don't talk about execution devices even now, do we? Oh, that man was sentenced to death and the death penalty was applied. But we don't necessarily always talk about it, do we? But that's what is so shocking. The cross? To talk about the cross? To say that you boast only in the cross? To say that the cross is the wisdom and the power of God? That it's the word that he is preaching? That it is wisdom? It's foolishness to the people of that day. It's utterly foolish. In fact, diving even deeper, the Greek word here for folly is morias. That's where we get the word moron or moronic from. You see, such a message that Paul is bringing was scandalous. Scandalous to the Jews. Moronic to the Gentiles. But look at verse 24. But... There's that great adversative conjunction. I love big adversative conjunctions. But to those who are called, whether Jew or Greek, to those who are the call, the word of the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Look again also at verse 30. The object of that word, the one who hung on that cross for the sake of those who are the called, we know who that is, right? It's the great Sunday school answer. Jesus, right? The object, Jesus. For those who are united to him by faith, verse 30 says, he has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. I don't want you to miss this, friends. The word of the cross, the word is not just another garden variety philosophy of the day. It's not just some feel-good message that exists for mass marketing to the masses as some sort of New York Times bestseller. It's not just another pathway to peace and prosperity in this life. The message of the cross is the very revelation of true wisdom because it reveals to us the very person of wisdom himself. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah is the embodiment of wisdom. He is the word of wisdom. And because of what wisdom himself did for us, think about what he did for us, his wrath-satisfying, sin-forgiving, death-defeating, righteousness-imputing, substitutionary atonement right there upon that cross of Calvary. When you think about that, because of what he did there, you can be set free from those things that are foolish. You can be set free from the things of the world. And you can be transformed into a new creation. You can be transferred into the very kingdom, the very everlasting kingdom that is not of this world. In Christ, in wisdom, Paul says, we're justified, we're sanctified, and we're glorified. Not one ounce of the wisdom of this world can ever do that. Not one ounce of the wisdom of this world can ever do that. That is indeed what the preaching of the cross of Christ offers to the world, to the Jew, to the Gentile, 
to you and to me. So that leaves us with the question, what do we do with it? What do we do with this message? And that brings us to the third and final thing or point I want to cover from this passage. Again, if you're taking notes, you can title it, What God Commands of Us. What God Commands of Us. I mentioned at the beginning that, believe it or not, the sermon's actually about what the title, Wonderful Counselor, means. I mentioned that earlier. That's revealed again in Isaiah 9, chapter 6. When we think about that name a little bit more deeply, you might have things that come to your mind. Some of you might be, like I spent some time this week, privy to the debate. Is it really one name or is it two names? Are these five names or four names? Hey, there's four weeks of Advent. Let's make it four. That's not what we need to be thinking about. But what does come to your mind? When you think of wonderful counselor, you think, oh, it just means that Jesus is, he's wise. He's a, a warm and fuzzy therapeutic ear. He hears me when I pray to him. Listen, I could go on and those things would be true. I mean, Jesus is certainly a ready and willing receiver of our many cries for help and condolence. He, he's given us his word. We have his wisdom written for us as well in the word of God to lead and guide us. He is truly all those things. But that's actually not what this name means. That's not what this name means at all. When God reveals this name through Isaiah, to Isaiah and through Isaiah, he's spurring Israel to remember a promise. All four of these facets point to this promise. That a child would one day be born who would fully fulfill the covenant he had made with David. Do you remember that covenant? To sit a king from David's line upon the throne of Israel for all eternity. Call it the Davidic covenant or the covenant of peace. Either one is fine. But it's God's covenant that he made with David. One of your offspring will sit on this throne forever and ever. What's going to happen to Israel? It's going to be hundreds of years, now thousands of years, right? There's not a king sitting on that throne physically. They're looking for an earthly king. And God's revealing through Isaiah that it's more than that. I'm promising you something better, the Messiah. And that word wonderful carries much more weight in the original language than it does in our own. We misuse the word, everything's wonderful, right? But literally, in the Hebrew, it means incomprehensible. It means unfathomable. David Strain says it this way. This Messiah will be so wonderful that he will boggle the mind. I don't know if anyone says that anymore. I think it's a game that we play sometimes. But it's boggling to the mind. Unfathomable. Incomprehensible. Counselor. Think about that for a minute. Counselor. In ancient Israel, a counselor wasn't someone you made an appointment with to, to talk. No. A counselor was the person who sat at the right hand of the king. He's the king's most trusted and most faithful advisor. But sometimes, we don't have time to go too far into this, but you can think about Solomon. Solomon is also the counselor and the king. 
Right? He's the counselor, the wisest one who ever lived until Jesus. The counselor himself is a wise king who gives guidance to his people. If you want to, you can turn to Isaiah 28, 29. I don't think you can understand Isaiah 9, 6, apart from Isaiah 28, 29. This word counselor is actually used to describe Yahweh, the covenant God himself. This is what it says. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. You see, what was concealed from Isaiah's day in the hundreds of years that followed has now been revealed to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is indeed God in the flesh. He is indeed the second person of the eternal, undivided trinity. He was indeed conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think about some of the words we've already sang together this morning. Born a child, but yet a king. The king who came with no crown or throne. You see, Israel was longing for his coming. And in the fullness of time, he did. In the fullness of time, he came. He lived for his people. And as we've been going through Luke, have we not seen him teaching and ministering in incomprehensible and unfathomable and undeniable ways? When you think about his whole life, he died for his people. He died bearing their sin and their shame upon himself at the cross. He rose again from the dead in triumph for his people. He fully and finally set them free from the power of sin and death. And of course... He rose again in triumph. He ascended, right? He even rose again. He ascended to heaven. That should make us excited. He ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand. Both God and counselor. Wonderful in all his ways. What does he do from there? Does he sit there and twiddle his thumbs? No. He rules and he reigns over his kingdom. He is a king sitting on the throne. And he rules and reigns over his kingdom, the church. And one day, he's coming back. He's coming back. The fullness of time will come again. Much to the surprise of Israel, it will be much to the surprise of us. He will return to consummate all things, to usher in the new heavens, the new earth. What in the world do we do with that? What do we do with that? I think Paul's call in 1 Corinthians is clear. Embrace this wisdom with every fiber of your being. Grab a hold of it and don't let go. Gone must be the wisdom and the ways of this world. What he says in verse 26. Consider your calling. What's your call, brothers and sisters? Consider your calling. What else can it be? But to live for Christ. And 
Christ alone. God chose, he says, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're in Christ Jesus, and I hope each and every one of you can say that. I'm in Christ. I believe in him. He's my savior. If you're in Christ, Paul makes the application very clear. Let your boast only be in the Lord, period. Boast in the Lord and nothing else. Nothing else. How do we do that? How do we do that today? Well, I've got one suggestion. It's Advent. Some of you might be groaning. Why do we break for Luke to have an Advent series? Let's keep going in Luke. Some of you might be going, where's the candles? Where's this? Where's that? Right? Who knows from where we came? But God brought us here. And I have your ear, thankfully, for this morning. Celebrate the birth of Jesus. Yearn for the King. The best way to celebrate His first Advent is to long for His second. To keep your eyes fixed upon Him. To boast only in Him. To boast only in the cross. To live for Him and Him alone. And as long as there's breath in your lungs that He hasn't come back yet, don't stop sharing the most foolish the most scandalous and the most moronic message in the history of mankind. Go tell it on the mountain. Tell the world that Jesus Christ was born for sinners like you and like me. Let the world laugh, because they're going to laugh at you. Let the world mock and scorn. But let the faithful sing of the wonders of His love. Rejoice. Rejoice in His goodness. Rejoice in the faithful wisdom that he's given to us in his word. The faithful wisdom he imparts to us by his spirit living inside of us as we read and hear the word of God. It's bowing knee to the king, the wonderful counselor, the one who has the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is indeed Lord. Live for him because he is your Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you turn?